Class 1 Rhythm Sticks. Digital drumsticks that made a different percussion sound depending on what kind of surface you hit them on. They weren't featured on many chart-topping records. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that no one has ever seen to, is musician and podcast host Paul Abbott. Paul, what are you up to and where can we find it? The main thing I'm up to is my podcast about Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, The 87th Precinct, and that is called Hark, The 87th Precinct Podcast. We're doing basically about a book per month and a bunch of film and uh, well, any spin-offs we can find related things. And the other thing is my band, which is Good Grief, and you can find all our stuff on Spotify and things like that. Well, I can't really follow that on with a joke, but I'm wondering what influence your first choice might have had on your own musical output, which I'm sure we'll come to in a minute. Anyway, here's a clip to represent it. very much not doing Carnival of Light. Let's just leave that there for now. Paul, The Complete Beatles is a video that I had in the 80s, which I think a lot of people had in the 80s. And what it represents to me is, I think we're in a Beatles golden age at the moment. And it started with the anthology coming out. But until that came out, to get any definitive sort of collection of like interviews of the Beatles, a story that wasn't just a book... I mean, yeah, loads of books and things. There was this film called The Complete Beatles with the hilarious spelling of complete as C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T. It was basically the best thing you could have as a Beatles fan. And I was a eight-year-old Beatles fan when, when I got this, I reckon. But it's also one of the most bleak documentaries <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. It opens with black and white footage of Liverpool sort of post-war, making it look like, I mean... It was no picnic in Liverpool then, but it really, really says this is the most boring, depressing, useless <laughs> place on earth. And who could imagine? And it's all done by, it's narrated by Malcolm McDowell, of all people. It meant nothing to me when I was eight, but I was obsessed with this video. Well, I'm not sure what his Beatles connection is either. I've been trying to figure it out and I can't think of one. Well, I think they just wanted someone who had a voice that could lend enough gravitas to this miserable tale of massive success. <laughs> Well, I remember that this used to be everywhere at one point. I mean, yeah. just to underline that, apparently, ahead of Anthology coming out, Apple bought the rights to it to withdraw it from circulation because having been the definitive Beatles documentary for a long time, it no longer was in their eyes. So like with the Beatles cartoons, like with all the Hamburg and Star Club albums, they just took it out of circulation yeah, so completely. so it literally just vanishes yeah. off, off the map of stuff. So if, if you were a young Beatles fan in 1992 and 95 and... You, before the anthology came out, there was this huge gap where you, you know, you probably would have come across this second hand if you were looking for it. But yeah, they just clawed all the material. But it, there was so much on the complete Beatles; it was amazing. Like most of it was black and white, but then there was colour footage from the the Budokan shows, which seemed to me like the most amazing thing yes, ever. Yeah, doing uh, if I needed someone and uh, an uh, electric arrangement of yesterday and things like that. Is that where they do that? I don't think it's actually in the complete Beatles. I think it's in Anthology, but where they try to do paperback writer live, and they're actually goes as a paperback, paperback writer, writer. Yeah. No, I mean, no wonder they gave up touring. 
it's yeah we were on a on a loser technologically speaking <laughs> really but i'm so fascinated by it I still think they should release all the live shows that they've got the full mm. whether they've got the rights to them i don't know well but, that's the yeah. thing with this i noticed that you know obviously it's been out of circulation for 20 years or something now but it still only fetches a couple of quid on Amazon. Yeah. Any VHS edition of it, which shows that it must have sold in ridiculous amounts. Because it's not just, you know, it's not orange juice dada with the juice, you know, which you have to pay enough money for anyway. It's the Beatles. It's a rare Beatles thing. It's something that fans once loved that's no longer available. Yet it's so ten penny that they're not spending stupid amounts on it at auctions. Yeah, and it's been so superseded by the anthology. But I think it does something very different to the anthology. And it's, it's got a load of interviews with, you know... These are sort of associated Beatles people. So you've got Tony Sheridan and uh, like Alan Williams and Bob Wooler and all that, all that lot on there. They don't turn up talking on the anthology. No. So it's really nice to hear them on this, even if everywhere they're filmed looks like some depressing church hall. <laughs> but everything about it, it's, 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 it's brilliant. And it made me a true Beatles obsessive when I was a kid because it was the first big visual record before I saw... Hard Day's Night and Help and all that. But it is really depressing. And there's, there's sections where the story changes. Like the Beatles for Sale section is like, this was showing a wearier Beatles, an unhappier Beatles, and the sound of like wind blowing, <laughs> blowing up in the background. <laughs> Isn't there a bit where it's got Tomorrow Never Knows and it just sort of like crash zooms in and out on the cover of Revolver? Like, you know, yes, like does, homemade yes. five pence psychedelia. <laughs> like we can't afford any graphics. Let's just wave the album around <laughs> a bit. Yeah, it, it has. It's, it's, it's an incredible... But it's great we're very lucky as Beatles fans now to have all the stuff albeit all officially sanctioned but that was brilliant and as you say they bought the rights to it it went off sale it dropped totally off the map well that's I mean that is quite an important thing that people forget about now when this stuff was limited when it was rationed you were really grateful for things like this you took what you could get I mean the example I always use is people sneer at Doctor Who Celebration now which is the first proper book about history of Doctor Who and you know it was a coffee table book it was written I don't like to call Peter Haining a hack but he was somebody who turned his hand to a lot of coffee table books he did them very well but he wasn't the Doctor Who expert by any means but he did this one book that had interviews with everyone that was still around a guide to every story ever made and at the time I remember thinking that was the best Christmas present I'd ever had I read it from cover to cover several times over that Christmas I I was obsessed with it, and yet people sneer at it now, and they just think, you don't understand, it was our Bible at one point, and that's what the complete Beatles was like, I remember watching it, more than I would watch, say, if they brought out Let It Be tomorrow, and it had a documentary, you know, uh, about Let It Be on it, I would probably watch that once, maybe, I wouldn't sit there watching it again and again, but now we've got everything, apart from Carnival of Light, obviously, (laughs) but you lose some of your appreciation for stuff, in a sense, I think. Yeah, and the good thing with the complete Beatles as well, it's had little sort of nuggets swirled away in it, like some of the Star Club tapes are in there in the background illustrating the early years. So you were hearing that even before you had all the official albums, you'd hear it being hearing some of this rare stuff anyway. It was absolutely great. Yeah, wonderful. So, well, as a close note, I will refer to the Wikipedia page about the complete Beatles, oh, just for one amazing fact that's on it. Right, you never knew this. The word complete is a tongue-in-cheek reference to the intentional misspelling of Beatles. And it doesn't even say citation needed. It's no, fact, that one. That's a fact. Well, so <laughs> okay, well, I'm wondering if next to your unofficial Beatles books on your shelf as a youngster, you might have had your next choices, although maybe you might have kept them apart a bit. Anyway, here's something I can't even say tangentially related. It's basically the same thing. <laughs> 
On your last trip, did you discover what the Earth people eat? They eat a great many of these. They peel them with their metal knives. Boil them for 20 of their minutes. Then they smash them all to bits. They are clearly a most primitive people. For mash, get smash. Right, well, you'll be saying, hang on, we all remember those robots telling us to eat smash. So why has somebody chosen that? It's not actually the adverts, though, is it, Paul? What have you chosen? I read a lot of books as a youngster, and amongst those books was the fabulous tale of Zeb the Martian. I think I possibly had two or three of these books, and it was basically the Smash Martians spun off into their own stories. And as I recall, the books didn't actually make reference to Smash, but it was the Smash Martians, because they were a phenomenon, an advertising hit. I remember they were, you know, like most of those little sort of slightly bigger than Mr. Men books, but mm. similar sort of size. There was always a moral, and Zeb was the young kid in the, in the Smash Martian family, and he was always getting into scrapes. I sort of knew that it was related to Smash, but it didn't say it in the book. We never hate Smash. I just don't know why they wouldn't have made some point of it. But they remember them being quite good and the illustrations being fairly charming as well. Things with robots in really did it for me anyway. So even if it was robots telling you a moral tale about not listening to too much loud music, was that one of them? There was something to do with music in one of them. But one that I will always remember. This, I think, was reinforcing a message my dad, to this day, says my dad doesn't like chewing gum or bubble gum or any of that stuff. Never did. So we never had it as kids. And there was one one Zeb book where the problem was someone ate some chewing gum. But being a robot, it got all gummed up around the gears inside (laughs) them. And it was all about the problems trying to cure Mm. that. Yeah, they were from 1979. And I think possibly... The reason that they didn't explicitly mention the link to the Smash adverts was, I don't think it can be a legal thing, but I assume it was just a morality thing, because you didn't really get at that point, as far as I can tell. Much merchandise, you know, especially aimed at kids, directly based on adverts. There were things that were linked, but I think it was possibly seen as a bit not on to doubly market to kids. But, I mean, obviously in the 80s you started to get things like, I know it's not kids, but the Gold Blend couple with their spin-off. Yeah, compilation albums and things like that and there, wasn't there a novel of them as well but you know in the 80s that starts to come in I think this is just before it and there were four books there was Zeb and the Martians Zeb joins the band which I yes. had yes. which well, I think wasn't it he let, he played some weird Martian interest with a bird called Claw yeah, stole there was it, a, and it was a, it yeah. there was an evil bird yes it was like a kind of vulture and yeah. I seem to remember <laughs> that the, at the end Claw who was trying to thwart this music maker <laughs> ended up having to tie rocks to his feet and put stuff over his ears because his feet were tapping in time to the music <laughs> so yeah, that's he was the, shown up that's the moral for Metallic Eagles I think <laughs> uh, there was also Zeb and the Jelly Men and Zeb sees the Doctor which I assume is the, the chewing gum, gum one yeah. I don't think there are any more than that but I did notice I mean they're, they're supposedly published by Martian books <laughs> I looked into that and apparently that was actually Golden Acorn Publishing now I assumed that you know given the advert link and the obscurity of these books that they would have done nothing else but what I found so far they did two Battle of the Planet sticker fun books fair enough it's amazing how often Battle of the Planets comes into this show <laughs> and also Willie Rushton's The Incredible Cottage books, which were storybooks that he did, and they don't quite understand the purpose of them, because they didn't, there wasn't a TV programme, they didn't tie into anything, but there was an annual of them. There was an annual of a series of children's storybooks. By Willie Rushton? I know Willie Rushton was unstoppable, and probably 
he drew while he was drawing. And yeah. that, you know, that, but even so, wow. I don't quite figure out. Yeah, one well, of my sisters had the annual for it. And we were like, what, what is it? Why has it got an annual? I don't recall seeing that on TV. I think it was just about a house where a witch and a cat and possibly something else lived. Well, that's I didn't think we'd get from Smash to Willie Rushton. <laughs> yeah. that, that's very impressive. He but... did do quite a few adverts, though, didn't he? He but... did, yes. He was fairly ubiquitous for a while, wasn't he? <laughs> but it's odd to look back now on how people just remember the first Smash advert, but there's a whole series of them. And yeah. I think when they did that 100 Greatest Adverts on Channel 4... It had an unused one with concept art. Wow. Where it appeared to be a kind of Noel Coward man singing in it. You know, that kind of megaphone on the 78 sort of way. Oh, yeah, way. yeah, yeah. Singing some pleasantry about... <laughs> Couldn't quite make it out. The robots all came past in, like, showbiz straw boats. It's like, <laughs> a plate of Capri smash. I don't know what anyone was thinking with that. I'm not surprised they never used it. But I remember one that parodied the... What was his name? Something Holland, wasn't it? The Muscle Man who used to come on things like Tears Was and go, duh, duh, duh. Oh, yeah, duh, yeah, duh, yeah. Duh, duh. <laughs> and they had one of the robots, like, did that, but, like, sort of tape started whirring round on his chest instead of flexing Those muscles. Those crazy yeah. robots. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. There's, there wasn't enough powdered products using robots to uh, advertise themselves. <laughs> space monsters. Yeah. But what other adverts were you quite taken with and would you have had merchandise of if they made it around then? I don't know. I'm, I was trying to think about this. Funnily enough, although it's not from the same era, today I, I made a passing reference to my girlfriend uh, uh, called her Mustin, because I was thinking of the Fry and Laurie Alliance and the mm. Leicester adverts. She said, what? <laughs> and which made me look those up. And I didn't realise there was as many of them as, as yeah, there was. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so that must have been my first Fry and Laurie exposure as well. We didn't watch the third channel that often. <laughs> <laughs> Too busy watching the complete Beatles. <laughs> And you never got the Beatles on adverts, did you? Although there was no. that weird thing in the 80s again. I know we're helping back to your first choice here, but I can still never believe that the Beatles were on a couple of compilation albums in the 80s. There was yeah. there were a couple of those EMI hits of the 60s ones, which obviously, you know, EMI had just yeah. said, we're putting this out regardless. There were two Beatles tracks on Now the Summer album, oh. which could be somebody's choice in itself, which is the... Was it the second? No, it was the third Now spin-off. But it was 1986, and it was summer songs that had Here Comes the Sun and All You Need Is Love and there was also but Not Good Day Sunshine weird No uh, I don't know what was going on there but there was also a Beatles track on uh, let's just say it was a compilation curated by a celebrity that they wouldn't be happy to be associated with now Ah My goodness who could that be <laughs> <laughs> But it's funny how you've got all those Mr Men copyist books I mean a couple of people have been on the mention of the Amazing Monsters books yeah. There were a number like that and it's it's odd that yeah. none really took off in the same way as the Mr Men yeah, I think perhaps Zeeb ran his course over those four stories. Uh, I don't think they were ever anthologised and, and put out as a, as a hardback special collector's edition. Oh, no, the complete Zeeb. I love that. <laughs> that I what Wikipedia would say about that. That would be amazing. The only other thing I had that was similar to that was I had an annual of the Andrex Puppy Adventures. What? Which I wish I'd thought of. Probably I should have said that one. And I, I, again, I'm not sure it was fully branded as Andrex, but mm. basically it was, t it was a little sort of anthropomorphised mm. golden retriever puppy getting into adventures in haunted houses and the like. I can't remember if there's any toilet roll based solutions to well, these stories, but... I was going to say, did it reference the... I mean, people talk about the comedians, that ITV stand-up yeah. show... You know, they talk about the, you know, the racism and the mother-in-law jokes and so on. What I remember is, as a child, thinking, 
All it was, so they all came on one after the other and say, you know that advert where the dog runs off with the toilet roll? <laughs> what they'll show you is the man running after him shouting, come back. Uh, and they all seemed to say that one after the other and it wasn't funny at any point ever, but th- that didn't happen in the annual, did it? Not that I recall, no. The one didn't end up, this kid's annual didn't end with like a Viz-style page of someone <laughs> dashing out trousers down trying to uh, <laughs> retrieve the toilet roll. I think my best moving on. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's to another children's character. This is one I don't remember at all, but let's just hear, I can't really say him, it in action. I thought maybe. Yeah. We can have a game of beach ball! Okay. <laughs> Oh! Oh, still stupid ball. What's that? I don't know. Now, does this belong to you? That's my ball! That's, it is your ball. You shouldn't have been playing with it down to your meat. You were disturbing the peace. I hate this summer. Especially when you lot start messing down with my beach and chucking your inflatables about willy-nilly. <laughs> wow. Okay, you're a bit crabby. Of course I'm crabby, love. I'm crabby crab. Okay, that was Chris Johnson and London Hughes on CBBC with Crabby Crab. Paul, what was Crabby Crab? This is well after my time watching kids' TV. <laughs> but I have two... Well, I've got three younger brothers, but I have two much younger brothers. And we were on holiday one time in, the, in somewhere like Spain or Menorca with me, that side of the family. And they were watching CBBC, which was on the satellite channel or whatever. So there was a string of puppets, always a string of puppets on children's BBC. And our era would be Gordon the Gopher and Ed the Duck. But then when CBBC comes on, there's all these things. There's like Ed and Outcho, which is a cactus puppet or something. But this one, and I think it was only for one summer, possibly even for one episode. <laughs> but I saw it two or three times. And it was a scouse crab. And he was called Crabby Crab because he was crabby. And they were using him as a mechanism to get people to send in their unhappy holiday stories. So things that went wrong on holiday, you know, like getting <laughs> stung by a jellyfish or whatever type of thing. But he was hilarious. And you could just see that the presenters, Chris and uh, London, just were barely keeping it together. <laughs> and it just struck me. And then I forgot about it for a couple of years. And I tried to look it up. I could find no evidence yeah, of it. Yeah, I found two references on the whole internet. One is some photos posted by Phil Fletcher, who made the puppet, who also made Hacker the Dog. Yes. Who bizarrely follows me on Twitter and likes the most bizarre off-brand for Hacker tweets. <laughs> and if you follow me on Twitter, you know how off-brand that can be. Yeah. And the other one is an orphan's tweet from somebody asking CBBC, what time is crappy crap on? And that's all there is. It's not year with it, check. <laughs> <laughs> well... I think there is a clip of it on YouTube. That's the only other thing YouTube yeah, I've yeah. found. And it's bizarre. The thing that struck me as it was like it was totally unscripted. Mm. And it may well have been. I don't know how much time they put into the script of this thing. Because he was going on about, don't come around here messing with me rock pool. <laughs> and it started like that. But then suddenly he starts going on about, I love lamb. And he's just this crab that's obsessed <laughs> with eating lamb. And I was just thinking... <laughs> One of the great things about kids' TV is very often how off the wall it is and mm. how, you know, like a Trevor Simon type of thing. Yeah. You know, how it's, it's silly and ludicrous and, and weird and you expect. And this was going down mm. that route. And I just, it just stuck in my head. And the fact that it was it was a scouse crab, it was, mm. it was just the most bizarre thing. Well, there was a lot of really kind of surreal and cutting humour on CBBC around that time. Because I think the one that a lot of people remember, because he was on before the Sarah Jane Adventures, was Outcho the Cactus. Yes, yeah. I started watching other appearances by Outcho and the Cookers. I loved him so much. <laughs> and the one that really stayed with me, that I've never forgotten, and I can't find this anywhere, I'd love to see it, while Saxgate was going on, 
they did the storyline parodying that. Oh, <laughs> not even parodying, like kind of answering back where Outcho and Ed were accused of a deaf old bat had thought they'd sworn on CBBC <laughs> and they were in trouble. They were like kind of evil paparazzi trying to get photos. You know, like blokes playing them in the studio. But the best thing was... Outcho released an official statement, which was a drawing of a dog standing on top of a bus. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that kind of, to me, that was them. I wouldn't say standing up for their mates, but standing up for the BBC. Yeah. And, like, fighting back with silliness. And the other one, of course, was Dick and Dom in the bungalow. Well, that was just where, intense. That was sort of after my time, but you couldn't miss that because it was just... A lot of those, even, like, CD UK and some of that stuff, you'd see that, they had sort of... Vic and Bob were almost like the, mm. the progenitors of that stuff. You know, they'd given people permission to be absolutely bonkers. And for some reason, it seemed to seep into kids' TV more than anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. So I've not got any problem with that. I think it's in the tradition of things like... I mean, you know, in the 60s, famously, there was Do Not Adjust Your Set, yeah. which is where some of the Pythons and the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band went when they couldn't get any other work and did some of the best material they've ever yeah, done. Yeah, brilliant. I think. And you got that thing in the 70s and 80s where people who... This was mentioned on the edition of Looks Unfamiliar with Mark Griffiths when he talked about Charles Horty showing up on Runaround. But, you know, <laughs> these people who... The work was drying up for them a bit. You know, you look in Kenneth Williams' diary, he's always doing things like Cracker Jack and so on between yeah. bigger engagements. And they went to Kids TV and they embraced it. You know, people forget how many years Frankie Howard was on children's ITV for. Yeah. It's just following in that tradition, really, is people... I think people like to have limitations as well, not to see what they can get away with in a, you know, a shock value sense, yeah. but how far they can push... The boundaries of comedy, like you say, Trevor and Simon were very like that. Some of their references were so arcane. I think sometimes people say, "Well, they knew that dads were watching, dads and mums were watching." Mm. A bit older, but actually, I think that does a disservice to how what the things kids find funny. You know, mm. they, these things aren't. They're not going. Oh, we'll do this because the dads will get it. They're yeah. doing it because it's just ludicrous. Yeah, they get yeah. it. The worst way that comes across is when people are literally just doing it for themselves, like in a studio, like a presenter and someone else. But when you stick these puppets in there, mm. they're instantly. You just get them because they're so quick and visual. But then they're also tearing the whole setup apart <laughs> by virtue of just saying the weirdest things. And this this scouse crab with a penchant for for lamb and being miserable was uh, <laughs> well, it was brilliant. Do you think? Because it sounds like this from what you're saying. Was he only ever on once? It must have been because I, I I really feel for that poor tweeter then saying <laughs> when's he going to be on? Oh, heartbreaking. <laughs> okay, we're well, moving on from Krabby Crab, who I'm sure was a very accomplished and well-made puppet, and oh, if it'd yeah. been merchandise of him, would have been top quality. To a toy that I didn't know this existed until earlier today, and I still can't believe it existed. But I've even found an advert for it. Rock Lord, meet the attack beasts of the good and evil Rock Lord. Rock gnarliest beats that live to fight. Boulders trapped. Set loose the gnarly. Cut off to this magmar. Good gnarly hogs and gnarly fins versus evil gnarly and gnarly Their every move a creepy quiver. Don't let their good looks fool you. Rock gnarly. an advert for Gnarlies which was spin off from not just Rock Lords who've been shouted about on here many times but like Transformers that turned into rocks these were a spin off from Rock Lords yeah. Paul what is a Gnarly and why? The backstory for this for me is I was a Transformers obsessive now proper Transformers I had two things it was the Beatles and Transformers and that was more or less all I was interested in <laughs> Did they do one? <laughs> the yellow submarine that turned oh. into a big job oh you've 
you know what that could happen you know these <laughs> days with licensing and stuff but yeah I, I love Transformers more than almost anything any toy I've had at school I used to just write stories when we had English lessons I'd just write story after story about Transformers until the teacher said Paul stop writing stories about Transformers <laughs> so I started writing stories about GoBots instead <laughs> Even robo machines, GoBots. No, it's yeah. go And I didn't really like GoBots, and the GoBots toys are awful. What's weird about GoBots though is they made a movie not long after Transformers the movie, which is a good film called Battle of the Rock Lords. So you've got GoBots who spin off this thing called Rock Lords, which are literally just round rocks. They were rubbish, but I probably had two or three of them. It didn't stop there because they then had, as characters spun off there, these things called Gnarlies. And Gnarlies are about three or four inches across, plastic monster toys covered in fur or hair, and they've got a little wheeled mechanism, and, and if you roll them along, the beak or jaw or trunk of the whatever gnarly you've got goes up and down its tail, and it makes a weird sound. Well, we do actually have one here. Can we hear that sound live? We can. We can. Uh, this is, um, I think it's called Gnarly Baboon. Ah, yes, I've got the names of all of them here, which I may, might read out in a minute because I love them so much. But... So I'll, I'll, I'll try making the noise on the table. It might add some added vibration <laughs> to the recording device, but it's probably worth it for the joy of it. <laughs> so that's the sound of a, of a, well, the backstory is it's some sort of accompanying life form to the Rock Lords on their planet that is, you know, I don't know. I don't know why I've still got three of these and why I had them in the first place. Possibly it was maybe, maybe they were priced at a reasonable, <laughs> reasonable level. Well, they'd have to be because they really do look like a very, very cheap, there's no jointing on them, sort of representation of an animal with, like you say, a big wadge of fur on top. Now there is one of them, I'm not sure which one, but saw a photo online that basically had... The hair that you know all those bloody idiots have at the moment. Trump, Boris Johnson, oh, Gert yeah. Wilders, <laughs> Milo, all those halfwits. And it just looks like them. So <laughs> if they're basing themselves on gnarlies, that says a lot to me. I did get the full list of gnarly characters. There was Gnarlifant. Yeah, I think I had Gnarlifant. Gnarlyhog. Gnarlizard. Bit of a change of the format there. Gnarligator. Gnarly yeah. Baboon, which is the <laughs> one we've got there. Gnarly Rhino. Gnarly Bat. And Gnarly Bull. Not only that, they have vehicles. What? They have the Stone Wing, which is a jet fighter, and the Rock Pot, which is the three-wheeled vehicle. Oh, yes, yeah. I think they were supposed to be able to fit into them with, like, Rock Lords or something. <laughs> they got into this point with toys. And it happened with Transformers as well, where they were just looking for ways to keep moving the, the toy lines forward. Mm. And with Transformers, it was the Action Masters. Yes, they've been featured on here. Had the Action Masters, which were the untransforming Transformers, mm. at which point I was starting to go... Yeah, I think they're pushing this a bit. But GoBots, which were rubbish in the first place, to be spun off to the Rock Lords, to be spun <laughs> off to the Gnarlies. But they featured in the film, mm. Battle of the Rock Lords, which had Telly Savalas and Margot Kidder doing voices in it. Well, I, it still amazes me that GoBots and Rock Lords took off. I mean, there must be been the pale in the cheap and nasty side of it, but I remember there being loads of short-lived, sort of more high-concept action figure lines around the time. There was Brave Star, which is oh, the yeah, Western yeah. one. There was Black Star that nobody remembers, which is the oh, ones yeah. with flint in them, where when you turn the sort of lighter thing on the back, they lit up. They were really yeah. impressive. There were ones that I can't remember the names of, but these being that bird for them was in every ad break on TVAM, you know, when you're watching. Yeah, it wouldn't have been data on. There would have been summer run over the summer, which is the one where they replaced the theme music with a reworking of "Mama Used to Say" by Junior, where he just sang "Ooh Summer Run." 
over the opening chords. They turned round and they were, they had a kind of swivel action. They were different. Maybe they were good and evil characters. Well, there was yeah, it was always yeah. a good and evil, but wasn't it? It's impossible to Google for them because there's yeah. no defining characteristic I can remember. And like always in adverts on TVAM brackets, action figures doesn't really help me. No, I mean just the, the amount of plastic tap that came out, off, and particularly off the back of Transformers, which was such a smash hit mm. because they've lasted. That tells you how good yeah. they, they were or are even new toy lines out all the time get better and better really gnarlies no one has yet done the masterpiece edition of gnarly gator or the gnarly baboon that you know you pay 300 dollars or import from japan or something do you think there's like to be a film franchise for them oh well don't let michael bay know <laughs> do let michael bay know but they need all the help they can get maybe yeah. maybe <laughs> okay well like i say gnarlies are just kind of basic plastic animal representations with a fancy cover on them and that also kind of you can see my computer allegiance coming out here mm. applies to your next choice here's a clip related to it and today i thought i'd look at the commodore plus four i thought i'd guide you through me just playing around with it and setting it up because it's not a machine that i've had a lot of experience with i don't think a lot of people have Either. Okay, that was YouTube and Nostalgia Nerd playing around with the Commodore Plus Stroke 4, which I don't remember at all. Despite resenting all the Commodore evangelists in school, I don't remember them bigging this up so much. So, Paul, why might they have avoided it? Basically, when people say Commodore, they either think Amiga if they're you know a little bit older, or it's the Commodore 64. And then you obviously some people would have said, oh, I had a Vic 20 or, or whatever. But in the midst, the, the midst of all of that stuff, there was a thing called the Commodore 16 and a thing called the Commodore Plus 4. The Commodore Plus 4 was, in many ways, the absolute best Commodore that had been put out. It had four inbuilt productivity things, which as a kid I was just like baffled by. <laughs> There's some little grey buttons and you could press it and you'd get like a word processor, but you know, of course no one ever had a printer or a disk mm. drive to save any of this stuff on. But it was inbuilt productivity tools. I think it had some better functionality for modems potentially. And it had cartridge ROM slots, which I know some other computers did. And it didn't look like any of the other ones as well. It had this sort of weird boxy body with uh, the cursor was actually little arrow buttons. And it had 64 kilobytes of RAM, like the Commodore 64. And it was rubbish. Yes. It was just rubbish. <laughs> the problem was they hadn't built in any graphics handling power mm. so also no sprite handling power. So it couldn't do what the Commodore 64 did, which was give you masses and masses of really good games. Mm. And so, to compensate for this, they twinned it with the Commodore 16, which only had 16 kilobytes of RAM. And so, everything was lowest common denominator. And so, nobody cared. I think it was quite expensive as well. It can't have been quite expensive when I got it, but I remember, basically, it was my first computer. My parents bought it from a shop in York. It's where I learned to program in BASIC. It's where I learned what machine code was. And it meant the absolute world to me, that computer. The other day I was in the loft at my mum's house and the insides of it are still there from when it <laughs> finally broken and I took it all apart. But it was, yeah, it was just condemned to this life of, well, not even mediocrity. It didn't mm. even make mediocrity. Because the Commodore 16 was, was just like, it was in the same box as a VIC-20 or a Commodore 64, but it just had no memory. Apart from one or two games, which were made specifically for the Plus 4, including the game Saboteur, another game that has been mentioned on this what? podcast there a, before. There was an early version of Saboteur for it? it was Saboteur was on the Commodore Plus 4, and there was a specific Plus 4 version, which was really good. There was it had the plus four version on one side of the tape and the Commodore sixteen version on the other side. Wow. Yeah, so you could have all the 
fairly detailed running around throwing shuriken in dogs' faces that you, <laughs> you liked. Well, that's, I mean, as far as I can tell, it was only on sale for about a year. Mm. And I'll come back to what happened after that in a minute, because that ties into something I remember that I've never tracked down. But the problem with it appears to have been it was kind of passive-aggressively marketed as a successor to the Commodore 64, mm. especially with regard to those four Office applications, which I think were word processor, spreadsheet, database, and graph. Oh, yeah. Just one graph. You know, that was kind of pushed as, look, all the family can use it. Dad can do his business on it. But obviously it didn't have back compatibility with the Commodore 64. Now imagine if games were not cheap in those days. Imagine if you spent all that money on, you know, thing on the spring and things like that. Mm-hmm. And you then unknowingly replaced your Commodore 64 with this. And none of them would work on it. No, imagine that. No wonder they got such negative feedback. But what I remember is that after they withdrew it, they really pushed the Commodore 64 again. Yeah, it sort of had a renaissance. It did. And I remember there was like there was a starter package you could buy, I think exclusive to WH Smiths, where there was an ad campaign on TV all that Christmas in 1985, where it had, obviously trying to atone for the past errors, our family opening it up on Christmas Day and finding out all the things that they individually could do with it. Dad saying, oh, look, here's some spreadsheet software. But then he had a teenage boy because it came with the game of The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole oh. and the copy of the book. And he held them up and he went, look, Dad, Adrian Mole. <laughs> <laughs> you could almost hear the ridiculous spelling of it in the way he said it. Wow. I would love that to turn up somewhere online. It never has. Oh, so yeah, the Commodore Plus 4 didn't get tied into any popular teen, <laughs> teen novels. It just felt like such a wasted opportunity because clearly as we owned it, and we didn't get rid of it or anything because you could buy the games and you know you could get a load of mm. Mastertronic games for it. And they were on sale in Toys R Us and all yeah. those places alongside the 64 for a while. But the, you know as every month went by, there was a smaller and smaller <laughs> section of the shelf going along. And it had, it had most of the, the main things. You'd get all the Galaxian clones and all that. So a really good game called Trailblazer where you sort of went down this infinite path into the distance. You were a bouncing ball. You had to bounce over holes. Mm. And an amazing version of Kickstart, which was on quite a lot of machines. But the Plus 4 version was really good because it was different to the rest of it. Did them. it have the music from Kickstart? It did, yeah. Whoa! <laughs> Fantastic game on a cartridge called Jack Attack, which you were a little alien that moved blocks around to squish balloons. That was fun. And... One that came with it when you bought it called Space Sweep, which was, you were a little spaceship just flying through the vastness of space, which was populated by annoying meteors and things like that would kill you. But you could go in any direction, up, down, left, right. It was like this infinite scroller. And it was somewhere between the most zen-like thing, or being in 2001 A Space Odyssey, and also the most annoying thing, because the limited sound handling meant that the music, which played continuously, would stop every time you fired your gun. So you just get this basically... Music, music, gun, music, gun, music, music, gun. <laughs> it was weird. But yeah, apparently the Commodore Plus 4, they, they bumped down the price and, and it sold really well in Eastern Europe. So it was a big hit in Hungary. <laughs> I don't know if that's funny, but it is. <laughs> when playing. you turn it off and say, Endu Tokek. What a strange... <laughs> it was, but it was my computer and it was my first introduction to this, the, the world mm. of computing, and I just loved it and... Then it died. Well, I've just thought of the most contrived link ever into your last choice, which is that I would guess if you went to program on a home computer, you probably sometimes just started doing things without any game plan in mind, just yeah. typing out lists of things. Now, I wonder if you ever did one for your last choice, which I've never heard of. And here's a clip of it. Yes, thank you. And I'm sure we're all uh, much more the wiser for, uh, for hearing that particular comment. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. 
Uh, please, thank you. Thank you very much. Is it a... Yes, anything else you want to say? Yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Cheers. Thank you. As I say, it was beautiful South. And did Terry and June get a mention in that song, do you think? I think they did. I'm sure I heard it. It was me who wrote Terry and June and Tales from the Crypt, so Witchfinder General gets a mention as well. What about that, eh, Witchfinder General? <laughs> Actually, talking of Witchfinder, I've had a letter down here from uh, Robert Smith of St Albans, Hertfordshire. Thank you, Robert, and you're probably thinking, Your Excellency, strike a light, strip me naked and call me Susan. How, indeed, can Robert pick us up? on his uh, wireless in St Albans. And uh, I would, of course, uh, retort with he must have a damn good aerial, actually. OK, that's Paul Carrington from the very aptly titled Late Night Funter Show on Signal Radio. In uh, 1990, we moved to Stoke from Scarborough, and I'd never really listened to radio particularly. But after a couple of years, people were saying, have you listened to this thing called the Late Night Funster Show? And I love comedy. Blackadder was one of the obsessions by that point and things like that. I think I was starting to get into Python and stuff like that. So a zany DJ to me was the like an absolute turn-off. But this show, so I thought I'd give it a try anyway. Mm. So I got my Walkman because it was on at like 11 at night. So Signal Radio was broadcast out of Stoke. And this thing called Late Night Funster Show was on. 11 o'clock to 2 o'clock. Once a week, possibly on the weekend. And it was the weirdest, silliest thing. It was almost constantly noise of either a jingle or a sketch or a skit or a song and the only song I can remember them playing on it was Going Loco Down in Acapulco <laughs> I can't remember any of the other tunes that they had on there but they he definitely had that one on it was presented by a guy called Paul Carrington the funster himself <laughs> I was going to say you see the photo of him he looks like every kind of post Wally DJ you yes. know zany glasses and this kind of hello mum wave yeah. except that he's he's much better than that yes. much weirder yeah. much more creative the amount of time and effort he must have put into the jingles I mean I'm not talking Kenny Everett levels of genius here but because people would know about it it would have mm. been, it would perhaps have had a bigger reputation but he'd do things like he'd do um, like the Liberty Bell thing the Python theme but with lyrics all about the Funster show the Grandad song with Clive Dunn was it? Did oh it? yes yeah. but it was like Funster Funster <laughs> you're ugly that's what we are and tons of things like that but there was regular recurring characters and like Gorby Gorbachev would ring up every week <laughs> and, he, and he was just a catchphrase was something like back in the saddle again <laughs> I, had no, I had no idea what was going on but there was one thing on it that blew my mind and to this day I think it's one of the funniest things I've ever heard so every week there would be a guest appearance by Sweep from the Sooty and Sweep show <laughs> so obviously Sweep only does those yes, beeping yeah. noises he makes <laughs> But every week, the reason Sweep would come on, and it just cracks me up thinking about this, and it's going to leave so many people absolutely cold on it. He'd come on, and he'd ask to do his impressions from the film Highlander. And, <laughs> and if you only ever do one, he'd go, What's that, Sweep? You cannot die, MacLeod. And that would be it. And he'd just, every week. And it, it just seems so odd and so... Why would you be doing this on the local radio? Even in this bizarre nighttime <laughs> time slot. And just for someone who was just getting into Python and things mm. like that, and the disjointedness of the humour and, and it making it not bearing any resemblance to anything. Mm. Oh, it was wonderful. 
Well, it's interesting that it seems to be in the late 80s, early 90s, which seems to be the, around the time he was on Signal Radio. Yeah. Because the one thing I managed to find out was apparently he was sacked after making an off-colour joke about Michael Jackson. Now, uh, I bet that joke wouldn't play quite so badly now, yeah, should we say. But around various times, if you look around the particularly the BBC regions, but some ILR stations as well, got late-night shows by the then-unknown likes of Chris Morris, Armando yeah. Iannucci... Rob Bryden, Victor Lewis-Smith. On Radio Scotland, you've got Alan Cumming and Forbes Mason. And so they were obviously all trying for the, you know, the edgy, off-the-wall, late-night comedy yeah. show. Uh, and one thing I'd say about this is it, it wasn't edgy, or so it, it didn't seem to me mm. at the time, but it did seem, like, genuinely funny. And mm. I, like I say, I used to really cringe at zany, wacky yeah. humour. And it, this definitely was zany and wacky, but it was something about it. It was like, mm. oh, God, I wish I'd taped them. Because oh, you can find some tiny snippets of them mm. now online. And I think he's still DJ. You know, he, he did his own Funster show in other local right. regions, possibly. Another character he'd have on it was a guy called Cyril Plonker, which is, you know, that's a zany <laughs> name if ever there was. <laughs> Cyril Plonker used to play in the Bontempi pianoforte. <laughs> and he'd, you know the, those plastic Bontempi keyboards? And he used mm. to power them up and they'd go... <laughs> and then eventually there'd be enough wind in the thing to actually play... <laughs> And he'd do this, and people would request stuff. People would write in and say, can I hear this? And every week he'd just play Kumbaya. <laughs> <laughs> that is, it's so rare that people can get it right, but the comedy of repetition in, in that sense is, yeah. you know, there's few people who can do it correctly. I mean, Harry Hill can, you know, yeah. carry off saying exactly the same thing at the same point every week. But Yeah, I think that's... that's but that, that, I mean, if he could do that, I'm surprised he didn't go on to do more. Yeah, maybe yeah. made too many off-colour jokes. Yes. Yeah. At that but, time, you know, there weren't open secrets, these things. But the one we had around here, uh, I'm surprised again, there was nothing out there about this character, I suppose, was... I mean, you know Radio City in Liverpool. Yeah. It's always been like it is now. You know, sort of likeable, funny but funny scouser types being enthusiastic about pop music and, you know, what's going on in the shops in the city centre that they can see from where they are. (laughs) Not bad, but, you know, not adventurous. Yeah. One day, and I think it was in 1990, on the late night show, it had a jingle announcing Cousin Matty. And this... Bloke drenched in echo came on, sound like my impression of Kenny G, which people might have heard in <laughs> previous podcasts. Just talking this weird, strangulated American accent, saying weird things, saying phone in if you want to say croissants to anyone. <laughs> and it was briefly, it was briefly a bit of a cult. Yeah. And I remember him doing PAs at like nightclubs and stuff. And it lasted about a year and then he disappeared because obviously somebody knew would come in and thought, this is a bit too weird, get him off. But just for a short time. Even Radio City went weird late at night. Well, you know, the star that burns twice <laughs> as bright burns half as long. <laughs> yeah, it's just a shame, like you say, there, there isn't that much about it out there. Because, you know, there's lots of people talking about it. But as usual with radio things, it's just reams and reams and reams and reams and reams of observation about who had what slot on signal when, where yeah. they moved after that and so on, how many pairs of aviator shades they had. Mm-hmm. Nothing about the actual content of the show. I mean, you've told me in like five minutes... More than the entire internet knows about the late night funster show. Oh blimey, the archivists will be after my brain. <laughs> Why not do a Wikipedia page and put the word funster with a reference to a popular pun on it's not actually, is it? <laughs> okay, well just before we go, we've got a couple of things that you wanted to mention. We couldn't really shoehorn in as proper choices, but they're so bizarre that they're going. The first is 
Kenneth Connor singing the Winnie the Pooh theme, brackets, why was he doing this? Well, yes, that's my question, really. Um, <laughs> I don't I, have an answer for you. I, I thought if anyone would, but yeah, I've got a seven inch, so I, you know, you inherit Oh, that. it's real. He didn't, it's just, real. He just, he didn't just turn up on Des O'Connor no, tonight no. and do it. It's yeah. a record, and one side of it is Kenneth Connor singing the theme from Winnie the Pooh, the, the mm. you know, Winnie the Pooh, the, the Disney one. Yeah. And he's doing it in his very funny voice. You know, he didn't do the voice of Winnie mm. the Pooh. But I checked, the flip side of this is Jim Dale doing Teddy Bear's Picnic. Oh, hang on. This is ringing a bell. Is it on that weird, either surprise, surprise or happy house label? It's, it's one of the AMI some, kids. It's some uh, sort of music for pleasure thing from the 60s. Yes. Now, I think we had this. Um, does it have a picture sleeve? It might do. The sleeve, sadly, I think is long I gone. think the picture sleeve, there's loads of Teddy Bears, like, but not... Nice teddy bears, you know, ones that somebody had made. Yeah. Dotted around this video of a grown place having a picnic Ooh, and looking that's... like they knew where the body was buried just that's before they bring started it. That is bringing back <laughs> a, a memory, that, so... Yeah, I'm going to. I'm actually going to see if that's online. If it is, it's going up on the page with this. Edition. Well, I'll tell you what, though, the version of Teddy Bear's Picnic by Jim Dale is one of the eeriest, most threatening. It's sinister, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I had, yeah, I had that. But why Kenneth Connor? <laughs> why isn't there other stars of the Carry On films doing bear-related pop songs? You know, we could have had Barbara Windsor's take on. Bernard Cribbins is the Paddington theme for no reason. Hey, with yeah. lyrics. Well, yeah. there we go. You see, it's all linked. What are the bears and what are the stars? Well, yeah. <laughs> you could have had Bernard Breslau doing the Rupert theme. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine Kenneth Williams singing the Teddy Edward theme now, well, but, you know, well, which is obviously is completely instrumental, so I just like to think of him going, nah, 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 nah. I can't do yeah, Kenneth Williams. Yeah, no. That's what he sounds like doing that, though. <laughs> okay, and the other thing was your nan being on Going Live with Dudley Moore. What a thing to go out on. I wanted to know nothing about this before you explained it. So, if anyone remembers going live, they'll remember they had a feature called Live Line, and they used to ring people up that weren't expecting it. So, people would write in and say, Can you call up my auntie or my mum or my sister and say hello? It's like, and suddenly, so you like, Hello? It's like, Hi, it's Philip Schofield here or Sarah Green. <laughs> but sometimes they would send cameras around to a house. My nan, this is the early 90s, 91, I think, and my nan lives in Essex, still lives in Essex, but at the time they'd. They'd written in, my Uncle David or his, his kids, had written in to, to say, can you get her on? Because she's, she's got a little portable keyboard. My nan wasn't a musician, but she was learning to play. And she, she'd learned to play. Was it the Bon Tempe organ? No, not the oh. full-size one, sadly, <laughs> for conceptual continuity, but just a little one. And she'd learned to play Any Dream Will Do. Because that was like, you know, it's big Jason oh, Donovan. it was a hit then, yeah, wasn't hit. it? Yeah. They didn't ring her up. They sent cameras around to her house, but the studio guest was Dudley Moore. Why was Dud- I'm trying to work out why Dudley Moore. I don't know why. I think it's 1991. So that was that when Derek and Clive Get Horn came out on VHS? He wasn't pushing <laughs> that on going live. No. No, no I, I, I can't remember what he was there for. It can't even be the best of not only, but also because kids wouldn't have bought that. So no. why was he there? But he was there, and there was a piano there, and so there was cameras in my nan's flat, and I... She sort of goes, oh, the family's all here. And Sarah Green or Philip Schofield going, oh, I wonder why. And <laughs> so there's me, Auntie Susan and me, Uncle David and all my cousins. And me nan. And she's playing, do, 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 do. And Dudley Moore accompanies on the piano back in the studio. <laughs> Which is now, as a Pete and Dud fan, is like, this is an insane thing to have happened. I know at that age, I didn't, you know, I'd have known Dudley Moore from some of those big family films yeah, done in the yeah. 80s. But... It's me nan playing duetting with Dudley. <laughs> but the most amazing thing was, this is my, my dad's mum, 
so we sat around knowing it was going to come on because we'd been tipped off so we sat around but my dad who has no patience for things like kids TV spent ages sat there going oh fed up with this I'm walking the dog took the dog for a walk and it came straight on the moment he left the house (laughs) (laughs) so we missed it so strange and we obviously taped it at the time but the video long gone and it's it's nowhere to be found and I'd love to see it my nan's very old now but all I remember afterwards of talking to her about it and her saying I don't like Dudley Moore well don't spoil it (laughs) well unfortunately for her if there's one thing I know about Peter Cook and Dudley Moore fans because there's so few of us these days but they did keep between them just about everything that was ever on somebody out there will have that on video so if you do please let us know yes I'd love to get that rare Dudley Moore Grace Grace Abbott duet (laughs) video I think that's one of the best notes we ever had to go out on Paul it's been brilliant thank you The Lark's Ascending a complete guide to comedy on BBC Radio 3 Featuring Chris Morris, Peter Cook, Sue Townsend, Rowan Atkinson, Peter Tinniswood, N.F. Simpson, Armando Yanucci, the National Theatre of Brent, Ivan Cutler, Leonard Brossiter, John Sessions, Kenneth Williams, Joe Orton, Dave Renwick, Andrew Marshall, the BBC Radio Link Workshop, the King Singers, the Beatles, and more. More details, timworthington.org. <laughs>